0: A privilege it is to be back worshiping with you guys again. Uh, yeah, last time we were here It was just a week before we moved out to Warren where we are doing our church plan And so a lot has happened in the, the last uh, several months since that time um, We officially moved out in June got settled into our new house in Warren. I began my job uh, working with a mental health agency there in the the area and we've been uh, slowly building up a core group in order to be able to launch our sunday morning services so in september of this past year we started doing a bible study just to begin inviting people out Uh, it started very slowly we had uh, one faithful attendee every week that was coming out and then uh, around december the Lord just kind of uh, gave us an influx of of people who started coming out to the Bible study, just started showing interest in the work that we were doing. And so it's been uh, very exciting just kind of seeing that growth happen and seeing the connections that God is helping us to make uh, throughout the the neighborhood. One of the great ways that uh, my wife has been serving our church plant is we have a little local uh, yarn shop there in Warren, just a few blocks from our house, and my wife is an avid— crocheter and knitter and does some extraordinary things with yarn and so they do a Tuesday afternoon ladies time there where the ladies just get together and they work on their projects and it's just a chance for them to connect and so my wife has been going there weekly and just making a ton of relationships with the folks in our community and inviting them out to Bible study and she's just been such a blessing in that process and so we've just been excited to see how God is at work. We are in a rather unusual Uh, period of our church planting where the work has been started and we don't know when the Sunday service is officially going to launch. Our our hope is by next summer we are going to be able to uh, have regular Sunday morning gatherings. But this is a time of relationship building for us this is a time for us to be connecting with people uh, connecting with our neighbors and just continuing to share the gospel with those around us so we just thank you guys for praying for us Uh, on the back table out in the foyer there is a copy of our newsletter we send that out every couple months just to give some updates on how we've seen god at work and ways that we would appreciate prayer If you'd be interested in receiving that newsletter regularly uh, my card's back there it has my email address on it just shoot me an email and say hey we would love to be kept up to date on what's going on with your church plant sign me up for the the email list and we'll be sure to send you those updates so for those that are not familiar with where warren's at we're about an hour south of erie pennsylvania in a, a rather rural uh part of pennsylvania Warren is the county seat of Warren County, and the entire county is just a little over 42,000 people. So Warren itself is a city of about 9,000 individuals at this point. So a very, very small town. Within the borders of this small town, there are currently 20 churches, the majority of which are evangelical Protestant churches. And so when, when people look at that and they say, okay, so it's such a small town and there's already a lot of churches there, why are you going to plant... In Warren, Pennsylvania. Why is there a need for another church? Well, in our time being there in Warren again, uh, being able to connect with the community, one of the things that we've had the opportunity to do, since we aren't leading uh, morning services yet, is on Sunday mornings we've been able to visit a number of different churches in the Warren area and just begin to connect with other pastors there and getting to, to connect with their communities a little bit. And one of the things that I have noticed in these churches, while there can be some uh, solid doctrinal uh, stances, some, some uh, solid preaching, there is an overwhelming lack of true heartfelt worship in the area. And you, you just see it in, in all these churches. There's, there's a lack of worship being fueled by the gospel. So what, is that, what does that look like? What does it look like to have a true heart of worship, a a worship that comes from the gospel. Well, if you'll turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to be looking at a a short section in this, uh, verses 12 through 17, in which we're going to look at how Paul demonstrates true worship for us. Now, Timothy is a young pastor and a co-worker of the Apostle Paul, We see him mentioned throughout Paul's travels in Acts as a a common companion. Uh, We also see him mentioned in many of Paul's letters, you know, hey, Tim says hi. Uh, He's he's there throughout the New Testament. And when he's introduced in 1 Timothy, in his first chapter, Paul refers to him as my true son in the faith. Now many suppose that is an allusion to Paul uh, leading Timothy to Christ, uh, which is a, a very strong possibility. But I think as we see their relationship develop, it it has a deeper sense than just how Timothy got his start in the gospel. Paul seems to see Timothy as an heir to the gospel ministry that Paul himself is carrying out. He sees Timothy as the one that's going to carry the torch to the next generation, continuing the work that Paul has started. And as any good father, Paul seeks to pass on those things that are of greatest value. For him to Timothy. And what's most valuable for Paul is a robust perspective of the gospel, and it's, it's transforming impact on his life. And so we see this being transferred to Timothy as Paul says, Timothy, these are the things that I, I want you to know. And uh, 2 Timothy, the final letter that we have recorded of Paul's, Paul is, is certain that he is going to his death. And his last thought is, I need to write to Timothy. I need to give him one final encouragement. I need to tell him to stay strong. I need to give him some few final words of wisdom. This is the kind of relationship we see here. And so in First Timothy, we see Paul calling Timothy and the church as a whole to a right understanding of worship. And how worship is fueled by the gospel. And where Paul starts with his worship may seem a little odd and a little counterintuitive to where we'd start with our worship. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a British author and a a devout man of faith, uh, he wrote a lot of uh, letters in in the newspapers, a lot of articles in the London newspapers uh, in the early 1900s. And he would write on a a number of topics about society and about faith, about uh, philosophy, and he would often respond to letters that were sent in by readers, asking him to weigh in on different things. Well, he received one such letter in which a man uh, simply posed this question to Chesterton and several other authors. He says, what is the problem with our world today? This was the, the question he wanted Chesterton to weigh in on. Chesterton responded with the shortest letter he ever had printed. This was his response, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. This response, while comical and witty, has a great weightiness to it. See, Chesterton realized, if I want to understand the problem with the world around me, I have to look no further than my own heart. There is nothing that convinces me more of the need for God's grace in my life than an inward look at my own sinfulness. This is where Paul begins his journey of worship, though Paul can never be as brief as Chesterton. uh, He's calling Timothy in the church to say, I want you to understand true worship, and where true worship begins is an inward look at our desperate need for God's grace. So this is how Paul is going to call us to, to worship. He says, we engage in true worship When we admit the depth of our sin and the greatness of God's grace. This is how we enter into true worship. Now there's two pitfalls that we can often fall into as believers. The first is that we can think of our sin as immense and God's grace is limited. And therefore I need to try to bring my sinfulness down to a place where God can finally meet me and and have sufficient grace to cover what's left. The other pitfall we can fall into is thinking of my sin isn't that bad and God's grace is immense and so it feels the most natural thing for God to forgive me for these little infractions of his holy law. It it doesn't feel like a big deal to be forgiven. Neither of these two perspectives lead us to worship. What leads us to worship is when we see that my sin is immense and God's grace is sufficient. So let us look now at 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh Lord, we pray as we dive into your word this morning that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts to counsel, to comfort, and to convict. Lord, would you make this word be alive to us this morning, and would you lead and bless the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this section is a uh, section of thanksgiving that Paul is giving, which is not unusual. Almost all of Paul's letters, in the after his, his brief introduction, he usually jumps into a thanksgiving. What's unique about this thanksgiving, however, is it's not as Paul's typical thanksgiving, where he's directing his thanksgiving at the church or the person to whom he's writing. He's thanking God for the grace he sees evidence in their lives. In this Thanksgiving, Paul is not giving thanks for the grace he sees in others. He's giving thanks for the grace that he sees exercised in his own life, the grace he has received from God. This is an example of Paul's worship. He is worshiping God in this section. And so what we see is Paul's leading into this worship is he starts in a rather unusual place. Paul's worship begins when he starts reflecting on his former state. And this is where our worship begins, when we reflect on our former state. Look with me at verses 12 and 13 again. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. So Paul is here is thanking God that God has judged him faithful. And the thing that is so remarkable, the thing that is so unbelievable about this position God has given him, this grace, this appointing to his service, is that Paul recognizes he was absolutely unworthy by his own merit to receive this appointment by God. He is not merely a man of weak talents and weak faith like Gideon or like Peter or like so many of the other men of faith we see in the Bible. He wasn't saying, no, I wasn't just kind of timid. I wasn't weak hearted. I was an opponent of God. Look at how he describes himself. I was a blasphemer cursing God. I was a persecutor oppressing the church. I was an insolent opponent working to counter the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, I was in absolute opposition to the work of God. This was my former state. And brothers and sisters, this is our former state as well. This is, this is who we are by nature. But this kind of sober reflection flies in the face of, of much of our modern thinking. I've worked in the mental health field for the past 10 years. And one of the things that I've seen over that time is just this growing belief, this growing uh, philosophy that has been wholeheartedly embraced, that at the center of who I am, there is this sort of true self which is undefilable. Nothing can corrupt it. Nothing can, can taint it. Uh, this, is, this is what we're getting at. In, in much of uh, our therapy, it's, it's trying to take away insecurities, fears, uh, addictions, whatever is holding you back from expressing your true self. This is a form of self-worship. We believe that inside of ourselves, there's this, this wonderful being that just needs to be Released. If people could just see who I really was, they would be amazed by the great person I am. If I was just free to be myself, we never doubt that this inner self is wholesome or lovely or true. But Paul tears down this sort of self-deception. He says, this was not the case for me. He doesn't say, I was a decent man who was just led astray into blasphemy. No, he says, I was was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. This is who I was. This was my identity. This was my being. I was in opposition against God. In Romans 7, we see Paul reflect uh, more fully on this former state as he recognizes the, the natural man that's at war with God within him. He says, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul sees his natural state as being the dwelling place for sin. But this does not bring him to despair because he knows that Christ came for sinners. Look with me at verse 15. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now you may be objective at this point and say, wait a minute, does Paul really believe himself to be the foremost of sinners? This is the same guy who writes to the Philippian church saying, you know, according to the law, I'm blameless. He was a, a zealot Jew. This man would have been pharisaical in the way that he kept the law. He would have observed all of the Jewish uh, ceremony around cleansing, around holiness. He would have observed the Sabbath. He would have been very faithful. How can this Jew say that he is the foremost of sinners? Is he as bad in his persecution as Emperor Nero who would light his garden parties with the flaming bodies of Christians? Was he as petty as King Herod? who killed numerous children because they might pose some threat to his power? Does Paul really believe himself worse than those men? Yes, he does. And how does he arrive at that conclusion? Because the Holy Spirit is at work in Paul's heart, illuminating the sin that is present there. Paul knows that no matter how wicked the men around him might be, He will never see an evil outside of himself where he cannot see the seeds of that same sin in his own heart. He knows when he is soberly reflecting on his own state, I have the capacity for all sin. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is Paul's view of his own natural state. And this is an attitude the Holy Spirit wishes to cultivate in each one of us. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts to bring to light the sin that is in there. In Galatians 5, Paul talks at length about this war between the Spirit and our natural man and and that the Spirit continues to overcome our natural man and, and continues to lead us into more and more righteousness, drawing out this sin. But we don't often welcome this kind of exposure of our sin we don't often enjoy the process of the spirit illuminating the the depravity in our own hearts Uh, when i was in college for a couple years i worked as an apprentice for a plumber and i remember one particular job we were putting in floor heat in this this house and we were putting it on the the first floor which just had a little crawl space to get under there And so one of the things that I had to do was I had to crawl under there with this big six-pound drill. It was just this monster of a drill. And I had to drill holes in every single joist all the way down this floor. So it's about a 30-foot floor with joists every 16 inches. There was a lot of holes that I was drilling. And the way that this floor was, was set up is it was a dirt floor that kind of sloped upwards the farther back you went. So where I started, I was able to kind of sit up and drill that way, but as I moved further along, I had to kind of lay back in this half sit-up position, trying to maneuver this this heavy drill. And it was completely dark down there. All I had was my headlamp to to see by. And so I'm working along, and it, it wasn't long before my neck and my back just started aching. I just couldn't keep my shoulders up. So I start groping around in the dark, trying to find anything that I can use as a pillow so that I'm not having to kind of sit up like this and my hand fell on something that was kind of soft and squishy I didn't know what it was but it just it it was going to work so I grabbed it and I shoved it under my shoulders and I did the rest of the joists that way and it was great it worked great as a pillow but I get to the end of those joists, those and as soon as I finish the last hole, first thing I do is I reach behind me, and I grab that thing I was using for a pillow, and I chucked it into one of the far corners, and I didn't dare shine my light on it. I did not want to know what I had been using as a pillow. Because see, in the dark, as long as I didn't look at it, it was tolerable. It was even comfortable. But I was worried as soon as I exposed it to the light, it would be revolting. That's how we often treat our sin. As long as it's done in the dark, as long as we don't allow the Holy Spirit to shine his light on it, we can find it tolerable. We might even find it comfortable. But when the Spirit illuminates it, it becomes revolting to us. I can't tell you the number of times I've been shocked by the things that come out of my mouth. Uh, You guys may have had this experience. This is like a daily occurrence for me where you have a a thought that comes to mind, or you say something, and you go, wow, surely that could not have come from me. I cannot be that self-centered. I cannot be that arrogant. I cannot be that angry. That can't have come from my heart. And the Spirit works in us to expose, no, this truly did come from our heart. This, This is the view that we are to have of ourselves that of all the sin that i see around me the worst that i'm ever going to experience is always going to come from my own heart this brings me to a desperate place of a need for god's grace in my life and for me to truly come to a place of worship i need to be brought to my knees by my acknowledgement of my own sinfulness and my desperate need of that grace But Paul's example of worship does not stop with his reflection on his former state. This is is merely where he starts. But he recognizes, I no longer live here. This no longer defines who I am. Instead, he continues by reflecting on God's present grace. Look again with me at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service. He says here that he's thankful to God because he's given him strength. What an unusual word choice there. Why, why strength? Strength to do what? Well, Paul is recognizing that in his sinful state, he had no ability to overcome his own sin. He lacked the strength to overcome it. He was dead in his sin, a slave to unrighteousness. But Christ gave him the strength to break free from it. It was by the power of Christ that he was able to set aside his sin and be washed of it, to be cleansed of it, to live a very different life from the life he had been living up until then. Not only is Paul strengthened in Christ, but we see he's also been judged to be faithful and appointed to God's service. Now how could Paul, a man who was a persecutor of of the church of christ how could he be considered faithful how can god count this unfaithful wretched man faithful in his service because of the faithfulness of christ that was attributed to paul because christ was faithful paul can now be considered faithful second corinthians 5 21 says for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of god Paul's confidence that he has been found faithful rests not in his own merit, but it rests in his eyes being pointed to the cross of Christ. He says, "In the faithfulness of Christ, God has appointed me to be a servant." What a great grace he has received! Then we see in verse fifteen he continues to reflect on the nature of this grace. It says, "Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent." But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Look at how he describes the grace of God. It overflows. This was not a mediocre grace. This wasn't a a barely sufficient grace. No, it was abundant It overflowed into every part of Paul's heart, into the darkest places of his being. The grace penetrated it. It covered it. It it dealt with the sin that was there. This is the kind of grace that we have in Christ. Believer, you did not just barely make it into the kingdom of God. It was not a close race between your sin and God's grace. God's grace overflows towards you. It is there to meet you in your darkest moments. In the most bitter thoughts of your heart, God's grace washes in and it removes the stain of sin and it sets you free from it. This is the grace that you have received in Christ. Paul assures Timothy in verse 15 that all the promises that have been spoken of this grace are to be trusted. It says in verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says there was a great purpose in God's grace being overflowed in me. He says, I am an example to every other person that will ever come to Christ, that yes, Christ does indeed save sinners. Do you doubt it? Look at this wretched man before you who has received grace upon grace at the hands of Christ. This is is what Paul is, is glorying in, that in his weakness, God is glorified. He's exalted in his mercy and his grace. I've talked with a number of Uh, Christians that are struggling with their own sinfulness and and struggling with the despair of I seem to fall into the same sin again and again and again and I I ask God to remove it and I pray for his grace and I pray for change and it never comes and I just feel stuck I feel hopeless I feel in despair well I will never discourage someone from pursuing that kind of sanctification I want us not to miss the the glory that God receives even in the midst of our sinfulness. That every time we sin, God's grace shows up to cover it. So even at my worst, even at my most depraved, I am bringing glory to God through the witness of his grace covering that sinfulness. That his glory is displayed in his forgiveness of one who can't get it right. In the person that fails again, and again, and again. I used to think growing up that I had a very uh, boring testimony. I grew up in a Christian home, had both my parents, got saved at four years old, never fell into rebellion, or addiction, or any of those things that make for great stories, right? What a boring testimony. But the more that the Holy Spirit works in my heart, the more I become aware of just how deeply in need of God's grace I was. And of the dramatic conquest of the grace I have received in Christ over my sin every single day. There can be nothing boring about such a testimony. And if you are in Christ this morning, this is your testimony as well. And the testimony that stands for all eternity, that Christ has grace on his church. When we remember our former state and we reflect on God's present grace, it leads us to a place of true worship, of eternal worship. Look at how Paul concludes in verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul has faced the sinfulness of his heart. He's reflected on the mercy and grace he has received in Christ. And it brings him to his knees saying, I want God to be glorified, not just now in this present moment, but for all ages to all generations. I want everyone to look at me and say, how glorious is Christ? This is the worship that we are called to in the gospel. This is the kind of worship that Christ draws from our heart simply by the sacrifice that he gave on his cross. Brothers and sisters, this is the, the kind of worship we should be engaged in. We engage in true worship when we admit the depth of our sin and the greatness of God's grace. So let me ask you, are you feeling that kind of worship this morning? Has that been your experience over the past few weeks or few months or few years? Or do you find that it's just not your experience? You haven't experienced that kind of heartfelt worship. Perhaps you're listening to this today and you're saying, I just can't seem to generate that kind of joy and excitement over what, what has happened in my life. I've, I come and I sing all the songs and I join in the prayers. And I listen to the preaching. And I keep waiting for this, this joy to bubble up and it's just, it's not there. I don't experience it, but I desperately want to. Can I invite you to spend some time reflecting on your former state? Reflect on how lost you were. How Close you were to entering hell before Christ found you. How desperately in need you were of his grace. Reflect on the depravity that is even now in your hearts at war with the spirit of God. That God has to continue to deal with day in and day out. Reflect on the the helplessness that you were in. Until you can say, of all the sinners I've ever known, I am the foremost. And may this bring you to a place of worship. Or perhaps you're here today and you have no difficulty believing the depravity of your heart. You have no difficulty seeing your sinfulness. And this is the very thing that's keeping you from coming to worship. You cannot imagine a holy God wanting to hear from you. You can't imagine him wanting you to draw near to his presence. May I invite you to reflect this morning on the grace of God which is overflowed in abundance on you. That there is no sin in your heart that the grace of God has not dealt with. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ this morning, take heart. Your sins have been nailed to the cross. They have been dealt with in full. And there is there, now nothing for you Accept an invitation to the throne of grace where you may receive mercy and the grace to help in time of need. Do not be overcome with your sin because your sin has already been overcome in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, even as I speak these words this morning, I'm aware afresh of how insufficient I am to even speak on this kind of worship, Lord, of the the failure of my own heart to grasp the greatness of the grace that I have received in Christ. But Lord, I, like Paul, have a desire that this grace would be celebrated and proclaimed from generation to generation. I pray, Lord, that if there are any here this morning that are struggling to come with this heart of worship, that you would be at work, that you would, by the work of your Holy Spirit, soften consciences to be aware of the sinfulness that is present. That, Lord, you would draw us not to despair, not to a worldly grief, but a grief that leads to repentance, a grief that says, Lord, I am in desperate need this morning of your grace. And Lord, I pray for those that feel beaten down by their sin, that feel that they have exhausted your grace with them, they have exhausted your patience. Oh Lord, would they take heart that your grace is inexhaustible, that you have a fresh grace for them this morning and this week, and that each morning they would continue to preach the gospel to themselves until they take it to heart and say, yes, I am forgiven in Christ. It is not my merit that stands before a holy God. It is the merit of Christ that stands on my behalf. So Lord, would you you generate this heart here in Dayton? Would you generate this heart of worship in Warren? Lord, would your gospel continue to be proclaimed to all generations? In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.